been a joy to get to know Dave as a brother and uh, a fellowship we've shared together has been very rich. Uh, I want to thank you for today and uh, the fellowship we've shared. It, it encourages my heart greatly every time I'm with you. And Mike's been a great help with the uh, uh, sound system here. And Jamie has been wonderful in preparing this time. What a, what a gift Jamie is to your church. Uh, I want to uh, mention a couple of the other materials on the table and then tell you about an offering we will receive by God's grace. But um, the book that goes with this material is the one on the left, A Gospel Worthy of Your Life. And if you would like to use it as uh, a reminder of these things, praying through them, asking God to work them more deeply in your heart, it has an excellent study guide for small groups and classes, or you might just want to give it as a gift to a friend, so you can take a look at that. Our booklet series, a couple of the ones that I'd mentioned to you, to think about delighting in each other, the power of joy and satisfaction in marriage, how God knits our hearts into his and into each other's with satisfaction and joy. Hope for Hurting People in the Shelter of His Presence is a study of Psalm 31. David is in the midst of the greatest battle of his life. How God meets him there, this is a tool of encouragement. If you know somebody in a crisis of life, whether it's relationships or health or finances or battling with despair, this is a great gift of encouragement. We talked about relationships in the morning worship time and healing wounded relationships through the way of the cross is the model of the Father to get to that place of healing and unity. A couple of the other books that I mentioned that you might particularly enjoy. Uh, the Language of the Heart is 20 Worship Prompters and Meditations on Prayer. And the reason I did this is the change in my own personal devotional time. Going from going to the scriptures for something new to learn or something to apply, a new insight or principle to live by, I started approaching the scriptures in my devotional times as looking for worship prompters, just lifting my heart to exalt the Lord. So if you desire some strength in your personal worship or prayer, that would be good. Um, I had a book for women. Oh, here it is. Quiet. We have a book for women titled A Quiet Heart Discovering Peace and Power at Jesus' Feet. Carl appears one of my favorite teachers and authors. And for men shoulder to shoulder, this is on the book of Nehemiah and uh, the Beautiful story of the brothers in Judah coming back from exile, rebuilding those broken down walls. But the bigger story, of course, is as they're rebuilding the wall, God's rebuilding their lives. And, uh, oh boy, I had another one that was up there. The most valuable book on the table is the one titled Adequate. So if you haven't had that, it's uh, if we struggle with a sense of unworthiness and inadequacy, yet we want to serve the Lord. That study of the Old Testament prophets, Second Corinthians, and the apostles, 
how they walked with God in ministry will be a great encouragement to your heart. On the right side of the table, there's another basket, and that's for an offering, if God would put it in your heart. We are beginning a new team in uh, Uzbekistan, Tashkent, Uzbekistan, this April. And we still need about $12,000 in order to begin that team. So usually in these parts of the world, we have to fly the pastors in or cover their travel expenses and uh, also cover their food and lodging while they're there, in addition to getting ourselves there. So that's what that is about. So Uzbekistan is an increasingly threatening place for believers, but still open. So uh, do pray about that. And some of you know that we have begun a year ago a ministry to pastors from Iran, bringing them to Tbilisi, Georgia for training, sending them back to Iran to train their, their fellow pastors. And that is one of the most exciting ministries I've been a part of. And God is alive and well in the Middle East, and he is building his church in Iran, one of the fastest-growing churches in the world. So your partner's in that project with us, and we are so grateful. So, let me pray, and then we'll get back into uh, Philippians. Father, thank you for your grace to us in this day. Uh, The joy of being together in worship, exalting you and encouraging each other is a wonderful gift to us. We think of brothers and sisters around the world who do not have the opportunity to gather together in that kind of worship and fellowship. And we know that you have so richly blessed us with that gift. Thank you for the power of your word and your Holy Spirit who is here. And would you fill us with encouragement and hope again as we come to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would go back with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're actually going to be focusing on chapter 3 in, uh, and, and 4 in this session, but a couple of texts I don't want to pass by in uh, Philippians chapter 2. So after that text on the exaltation of the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself and became a servant, he says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so this is a strong reminder to the reality. Everything about the Christian life is so far beyond us. We cannot humble ourselves through our own fleshly resources like the Lord Jesus did. We cannot manufacture unity among God's people. Uh, The heart of the Lord Jesus doesn't come alive within us by any means or resource that we can bring. Only when God is at work in us can this be possible. And we can't quote verse 12 without verse 13. 
And we can never say to a brother or sister, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. That's an impossible, impossible reality. The hope is that God is at work in us. And he gives us both the desire and the ability to do those things that are pleasing to him. And then the following verses. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So again, this is in the context of the humility of Jesus. I I sort of ran out of time. I could have rambled on during the worship time, and I'm glad I didn't. But, you know, the text uh, just before Jesus went to the cross in the book of John uh, confront us here, where, where Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So it's not the buildings that we're building. It's not the songs that we're singing. It's not our projects around the world or in our inner city. That's not how people know we come from Jesus. It's not even how correct our theology is. It's the way we love one another that the world sees we come from Jesus. How do we shine as lights in the midst of this darkness As God builds into us the heart of his son, we look more and more like Jesus. We humble ourselves. We prefer each other. We give ourselves up. That's why we shine as lights in the midst of this dark place. And then remember in Jesus' prayer in the garden, he said, it is by the unity that they share that the world will know that I have come from you. So this is the gospel, the communication of the gospel, that we come from Jesus, that in fact he has been sent by the Father. The primary communication is our relationships. And the preaching backs it up, helps it be received. But the power, the lights in the darkness is the relationship issue. So I wanted to just look at those and then we're going to go to chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there are only two ways to live to glory in who we are and what we can do and put our confidence in those resources or to reject that and put all of our hope and confidence in God, who he is and what he is able to do. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So this is Paul's resume. This is who he was. This is who he had made himself to be. 
He is an excellent man. We read it and we know that as a young man, he, he sought those things that uh, were most valuable to pursue. He did it with all of his heart, all of his life. He became an excellent man. Most of us talking about our resume probably wouldn't quite look good as good as Paul's, you know. This is the reality. So he's saying, if anyone could achieve righteousness through the law, it was me. I gave it my best shot, and I became an excellent man. But look how he continues. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the passion of a soul now, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul took all of the achieved righteousness that he gained by keeping the law, and he traded it in or exchanged it for the righteousness that God gives when we place our faith in his Son. It's a wonderful description of the Christian life. It is in every way an exchanged life. We exchange who we are for who Jesus is. We exchange our death for his life. We exchange our depravity for his holiness, our weakness for his power, our hopelessness for the life that he brings to us. It's an exchanged life. So Paul makes it very clear, with all that I did, all that I pursued, doing the best I possibly could, I could not gain the righteousness that God gives to us through faith. I think it was about 1970, I went to our local hospital to visit my sister who had given birth to her son. And went to the hospital, visited with her a little bit, and then went over to the nursery area, the windows, trying to find my new nephew, Kenny. While I was standing there, a man came up and stood beside me. His wife had also given birth to a daughter. And we're both standing there looking into the nursery. And I turned around he was surely one of the most beautiful human beings I'd ever seen in my life. And as we began to speak together, what a personality and so eloquent. Uh, He would later change his name to Muhammad Ali. And no one was around us. We stood for 10, 15 minutes and talked. He had just lost his heavyweight championship crown because of his uh, uh, being against the war in Vietnam. So we talked about whether he would ever get back to boxing. I was a real fan of his. And um, then he learned that I was a Baptist minister. And he had just converted to Islam. 
I said, why did you do that? He said, this I can do. Very interesting statement. I can do this. You, most religions in the world, you follow what is required that you observe, and you can be a good religious person in that particular environment. We can't do the gospel. The gospel humbles us. It breaks us. It's the only religion in the world where you have to humble yourself to get into it. We can't do this. There is a righteousness that comes through faith. This is too good to be true. We believe in the Lord Jesus His death, his resurrection, his payment for our sin, his satisfaction of all of the wrath of a holy God. And God declares us righteous in his eyes and we become his child. This is a beautiful gospel. I count everything as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What happened to Paul and that Damascus road? We talked earlier about how the passions of Paul's soul fueled his giving himself to the gospel. From that moment on, every day of his life, he gave himself to the gospel. What happened on that Damascus road was more than a quote-unquote conversion experience. He saw something he had never seen before, the surpassing worthiness of Jesus. He was such a religiously observant person, did the best he could. But when he saw Jesus, something changed. The passions of his soul were inflamed toward Jesus and toward the gospel that bears his name. When he saw Jesus, it was not just an understanding, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, he is the chosen one, he is the Redeemer, he's the Savior. He looked to Jesus and he said, you are more beautiful than I ever dreamed. You are more powerful than I had known, but you are also so good. You are filled with mercy and grace. You bring redemption. You give life. We talked earlier about how we will never become passionate about the gospel, about missions, about evangelism, unless we're first passionate about Jesus. How does that happen? Only when we see the surpassing worthiness of Jesus. So what does that mean? What, in all that we are and all that we do, what is worthy of our life? Is our career worthy of investing our whole life in? Is our marriage, our family, Our our money and success, our pleasures, what is worthy of our lives? When we talk about the battle for the gospel in the hearts of God's people, the sad reality is many of us have never confronted anything worth more than what we're already giving ourselves to. So why should anything change? The reason that Paul's passions 
fueled his giving himself to the gospel is because those passions were ignited. They were inflamed when he saw the surpassing worthiness of Jesus. He said, whatever it takes, whatever it costs me, whatever I bear in suffering, it's worth it because Jesus is worth it. He's worth more than anything I've ever experienced, ever known, ever hoped for. You want to have an increased passion for the gospel, for evangelism, for missions. Ask God to show you more of the surpassing worthiness of his son. That's the place where ignition happens. So pray about that. What happens when we see the surpassing worthiness of Jesus? I'll tell you one of the great changes. How would you like to spend the rest of your life doing only as you please? If you could get up every morning and say, today I'm only going to do what I want to do. I'm only going to give myself today to the things that bring me the most pleasure in my life. That's exactly where God wants you to live. For Paul, that Pharisee, so observant of every law, covering every base to gain righteousness, what changed? All the ought-tos of his Pharisaical life were changed to want-tos. He only did what he wanted to do every day for the rest of his life. And the greatest satisfaction he could experience was found in this love relationship with his Lord. That's what fueled his ministry. It's the only thing that will fuel our ministries as well. Some places in the world, we do confront severe persecution. In oh, Some Asian countries are like that. In uh, one of the Asian countries where we're serving, one of our pastor trainers was arrested. And he was brought into an interrogation room. And after some questions, he was strung up over a beam by a rope that was tied to his thumb and his big toe. He hung there for several hours in great pain. After he was released, he was beaten and thrown out into the street. His name's Amos. He went back to preaching. He was arrested again. This time when he was brought into the interrogation room, there was another pastor in that same situation, strung up over a beam by the rope tied to his thumb and his big toe. Interrogator said, sit in this chair and watch him, and then he left the room. Well, immediately Amos took the chair and brought it underneath the other pastor to give him some support and some rest. A little while later, the interrogator came back and said, who moved that chair? Obviously, Amos, the only other guy in the room, I did. Why did you do that? Well, I've, I've experienced it. I just wanted to bring my friend some relief. Again, Amos was beaten and thrown out into the street. 
Now, could we be grateful that someone was there to say to Amos when his face is in the mud, Amos, I know this is difficult. I know this is painful. But you've got to keep going. You can't give up. You've got to endure. It's only going to be a short time. Jesus is going to come back. Of course, there's nobody there to say that to Amos. No one was needed. Why? Because Amos is doing what he wants to do. He's finding as great as joy and pleasure in life in his relationship with Jesus and being a servant of his Lord. I'm so grateful that both Amos and the Apostle Paul missed the seminar on the balanced Christian life. What an enemy of the gospel that is. It is horrible. All these responsibilities in life. How do I manage them? Juggling all these balls. I got, I got my, my job. I've got my wife. I've got my children. I've got my husband. Got my studies, got my sports and hobbies, I've got church ministry. How do I keep it all? Well, the answer is keep it all in balance. Well, the only problem is, first of all, it's not a biblical concept, never even hinted at in the Word, and it's not humanly possible. Not one of us is smart enough or disciplined to live that kind of life. That's why God's given us His Spirit. So we can pray honestly to our Lord, show me how to do this. I go overseas every month. I love my wife. How do I communicate to Karen that she is first in my heart when I'm gone so much? But if you ask Karen, her opinion, she said, I I know that wherever Bill is, he'd rather be with me. She knows she's first in my heart. But we don't know how to do that stuff. But we have the Holy Spirit, and he can show us what to do. Scripture does talk about a lifestyle, and Paul talks about it here, and in the Second Timothy letter. It's a poured-out life. Do you notice he uses the illustration, I'm like a drink offering being poured out? Christian's life, life is not a balanced life. It's a poured-out life. Problem with a balanced Christian life is everything gets measured out carefully. That's not the gospel. That's not the way to walk with the Lord Jesus when you passionately love him and the gospel that bears his name. It's a portal. You want to give everything to the one that you love and his purpose, the gospel. It's a portal life. When it's a portal life instead of a measured out life, the questions begin to change. Instead of praying and saying, how much should I give away? We begin to ask questions like, how much should I keep? Instead of asking, how much time do I, do I need to give away to others when I have house responsibilities and home and sports and hobbies. I need to spend some time taking care of myself, of course. The questions change. How much time do I need to spend on myself and how much can I give away to others? Ask God to bring you to that place. It only happens when the affections, the passions of our soul are inflamed 
toward Jesus. It's the ignition point. And then from that place on, everything changes. I just want to give myself. I'm not going to measure anything out. I give myself to Jesus and to the gospel that bears his name. Let's continue to verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's the ignition, the passions. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I love Paul's gracious spirit and his confidence in the working of God's spirit and his word. You know, if you don't feel the same way, it's okay. God's going to get you there. I don't have to convince you. He'll get you there. Two times in this letter, Paul gives embarrassingly simplistic answers to huge life questions. We looked at Yodi and Syntyche earlier. We don't know what had happened with them, some personal issue that had divided their hearts, threatening to divide the church. Paul gives a solution. Tell them to agree with each other. Oh, okay, Paul, we'll, uh, surely that'll solve it. Yeah, absolutely, it's done. Yeah, wow. How's that happen? This is the second time. What's behind, I leave behind, I press forward. Did Paul have some things to leave behind? (laughs) That ugly, putrid, pharisaical pride. I'm a Pharisee. I've done it right. Yeah. How far did that get you, Paul? Yeah. Yeah. He was a murderer, wasn't he? He was the one who gave the approval for the stoning of Stephen. Murderous heart. He gave his life to destroy what is most precious to our God, the body of his son. Paul had some things to leave behind. What seems convenient, Paul, is a big carpet to sweep things under. No. It's because of how Paul sees the cross and he believes what God says about his sin that brings him to this place. I was coming home one night from another meeting listening to another radio program and it was one of our best-known Christian programs. And the host was interviewing a fellow who wrote a book on forgiveness. It was a wonderful book, bestseller. Well, he'd written a follow-up book, so he was back for another interview. And the host said, well, why did you write a second book on forgiveness? And he said, well, because the first book only dealt with part of the problem. The real healing in our hearts happens when we learn to forgive ourselves. 
I don't know the whole Bible. But I sat there in my car, my mind going over the scriptures that I know, trying to think of a text that hints remotely at the fact that in order for our hearts to truly be free, we need to forgive ourselves. There's no text. This is part of a great war that the enemy is waging in the hearts of God's people today. There's a reason that you're not truly free yet to serve the Lord. There's a reason why you feel inadequate and why you feel unworthy to serve the Lord because there's still more for you to do. There are principles that you haven't learned yet, steps that you need yet to take, and then you'll be free to serve the Lord. It's a terrible battle, a war against the hearts of God's people. And it's a lie. The reason that Paul says so simply, so freely, what's behind I leave behind, is because of how he sees the cross of the Lord Jesus. You know, the truth is, as we gathered this morning for worship, if our church is like most other churches, there are actually some people sitting in the chairs in this room who have sexual sin in their past. Probably some gathered this morning who have broken relationships in their past. Some who've made choices that have devastated not only their lives, but the lives of those around them. How in this kind of world, when we're so weak and made out of dust, and our hearts are so prone to evil, how can we possibly be free with that kind of past to be God's servant for his glory? Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. We're going to break into the context here as the writer is contrasting the sacrifices of the old covenant, that is, animals, with the sacrifice of the new covenant, the Lord Jesus. We're going to begin at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, or that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now those last words that we just read, that is God's will for us, right? He's raised us up to be his servants. We know, and God knows, that we cannot serve him with all the dead works of our past hanging on us. So one of the gifts that God gives to every one of his children is the gift of a cleansed conscience. 
so that we can walk with him in freedom and power and joy as we serve him. The writer is saying the sacrifices of the old covenant were like taking a bath or a shower. You know, you take a shower and you're clean, but depending on what you do in the next several hours, it might be a good idea to go back and do that again. The very nature of a bath is it only washes off the outside of the person and it's a very temporary cleansing. The blood of Christ is different in every way. It is internal. It cleanses the conscience. It is eternal. It lasts forever. C.S. Lewis in one of his books talks about our life being like a train going down a track. As the train goes down the track, it passes many things by. Automobiles, farm animals, buildings, signs, all kinds of things. Difference with us is we never pass anything by. (laughs) We take it all with us. And before long, our lives become an accumulated sense of excess baggage. And all the stuff of our past, all the failure of our lives, all the broken places... It just weighs us down till we can't move anymore. What a gift. A cleansed conscience. This is the reality. God knows that if we would be his servants, we'd need not only to be completely free and clean in his eyes, we need to be completely free and clean in our eyes as well. He knows what he's done with our sin. We need to know what he's done with our sin. Our past is gone. And we can leave behind what is behind. Look at chapter 10, first part. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form or the substance of these realities... It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had any consciousness of sins. This is what God wants to get at, this consciousness of sins in our hearts. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer's referring to the hope of the Day of Atonement. There's one day, one time a year, when only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. God's people would look forward to that day with such hope. At last, our sins can be atoned for. At last, we can be right in the eyes of God again. At last, our hearts can be free from sin. But in fact, instead of providing that freedom, it just did the opposite. It wore the rut of sin deeper and deeper and deeper. Every time the high priest went in, it was a reminder of their sins year by year. God wants to deal with the consciousness of sins and replace it with a consciousness of his redemption. So, I'm not sure who's winning the football games today, but we do know 
this is a lead up to a football game called the Super Bowl, which has become like a national holiday, hasn't it? No event in our culture is hyped like the Super Bowl. A few years ago, you know, the, the week between the last playoff game and the Super Bowl, ad nauseum talk, you know. It's like an election. You just want to get it done with, you know. And, and anyway, there's somebody up at the podium talking about how this was the ultimate football game. All season, you know, these teams began, and then it came down just to the playoffs, and now it's just the two teams. This is the ultimate football game. One of the players happened to be in the audience. He put up his hand. He said, excuse me, sir, if this is the ultimate football game, how come they're going to play it again next year? I think these people felt the same way. If this is the ultimate sacrifice, if this is the most we can do to be right with God, how come we have to do it again next year? We don't have to do do it again next year, do we? There's one sacrifice for all of time and all of eternity, providing eternal redemption and internal cleansing, healing, and freedom. One of my favorite scriptures is in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is contrasting the sorrow of the world produces death with the sorrow according to the will of God, which produces a repentance without regret. Sorrow of the world, overwhelming shame, failure, guilt, condemnation. How could I have done this again? I thought I was beyond this. How could I fail again in a place where I thought I never would again? There's re- this is the gospel. You think the gospel's too good to be true? It absolutely is. There is a repentance without regret. Only in Christ can we take everything we've ever done, every place we've ever been, and bring it to the cross of Calvary and put it down, walk away completely free and completely clean with no regrets. You see, it's the regrets where Satan gets his hooks into our hearts. How many of God's people say, if I hadn't done that in the past, I could still serve the Lord? If I hadn't become involved in that relationship, if only I hadn't fallen on my place there, I could still be free to serve the Lord. This gospel, this gospel is glorious and beautiful and too good to be true. But it's true in every way. The cross... We can put it down, walk away free and clean, and say what's behind, I leave behind. Press forward. Remember how the book of Romans in chapter 8 begins? Greatest headline the world has ever read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did in the sending of his son. There's the contrast between law and grace right there. 
The law is forever crying out, do, do, do. Always more to do. We could see that in Paul's testimony. He did it all and more. Didn't get him anywhere. What does, what does the gospel cry out? Done. That's the grace of God. It's done. And the reason Paul can leave behind what is behind, he believes what God says about the cross. The finality, the fullness, the penalty being paid in the blood of the Lord Jesus. Let's go back. A couple more verses I want to look at with you in Philippians. Let's skip down to verse 4 in chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We do know that one of the great themes in this letter is joy. It's a joy that comes from the inside out, not a joy that comes from the outside in, depending on circumstances. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is a process through which we can endure in this kind of world. Rejoicing in God. It's like, it is a command. You know, you can hear Paul saying, rejoice. You didn't hear me? I'll say it again. Rejoice. And we, we might tend to say, well, you're the great apostle Paul, and you live on a different level. You can experience. And we remember he's in prison, awaiting Nero's sword, talking about joy. Talks about our patient, enduring spirit. Sensing God's presence, the Lord is at hand. Does that mean, well, Jesus is, you know, hang in there, it's going to be a short time. Jesus is at the door, he's about to return. Could be. I think it's part of one of the most beautiful themes from the beginning to the end of our Bibles. God's presence changes everything. The Lord is here. Sense his presence. Then he talks about prayer supplication, that's the cries of our heart. Sometimes we even know, don't even know how to express them. It's when we reach in the depths of our soul and whatever we find there, we just pour it out to our God. He gives us the freedom to do that. And uh, adding in thanksgiving and requests, God's peace, which we don't even understand, guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then, you know, he says, whatever is honorable and just and pure and true, pursue those things, and the God of peace will be with you. I'd like you to go back with me in your minds to those scriptures we looked at in Daniel this morning. So here's Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's threatening them with their lives that they don't worship what he has made. And they say, we have no need to answer you in this matter, O king. They thought of two possibilities, right? Our God is able to deliver us from your furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand. But whatever happens, we're not bowing down to your image. They thought either God would deliver them from the furnace, 
or he would deliver them through the furnace. God had a bigger answer, didn't he? He would come into the furnace with them. Now, when we're in the furnace and our lives are experiencing pain and pressure, confusion, loss, grief, more than we feel we can bear, we cry out to our God, I can't handle this any longer, God. You've got to get me out of this situation or out of this relationship or out of this job, whatever it is. God, you've got to change the circumstances. It's hard for us as God's children to realize his bigger answer is coming into the situation with us. His presence is a bigger answer than deliverance. It's hard for us to get a hold of that because we're weak and made out of dust. But there's something even more beautiful here. God's presence is not only a bigger answer than his deliverance, is a bigger answer than our understanding. When we're in those flames and we feel we can't last any longer, we can't keep going, what's our next hope? Well, if God would just explain to me why I'm in this situation, if he would just tell me what it is that he wants me to learn in this, I could handle it. No, God's presence is not only a bigger answer than deliverance, it's a bigger answer than understanding. Our healing is not in knowing why. Our healing is in the one who's there with us in the battle. Some of us live with the illusion, the dream that, you know, life is so confusing. So much of God we don't know, so much of our life we don't understand. But when we're with the Lord, he's going to take us aside for a personal conversation. And he's going to explain to us what was behind all those things we didn't understand. And that'll be part of our healing process. It's not going to happen. Two reasons. One is heaven's not about us, it's about Jesus. (laughs) Secondly, the moment we see his face, we won't be one bit interested in those small questions about our life situations. All we'll want to do is worship him. And the healing comes when he touches our eyes and wipes every tear away. And we see the beauty of the face of the one we've loved. That's where the healing is. It's not in understanding. So much we'll never understand. But we love the one that we know is behind it all. Always working for our good. Every point in our lives in every situation. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? That God is not only relentlessly working in our lives toward the display of his glory... He's just as relentlessly working in our lives for our good. I mean, this is a God we can love with all of our hearts and serve with every passion and resource that we have. Okay, I want to just look at a couple more verses with you. Verse 10. 
I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. I just like that phraseology as if to say, you know, where were you all this time when I needed you? Uh, You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's one of our favorite calendar verses, isn't it? We love to take these beautiful texts from the Bible and put them along with a beautiful picture somewhere in creation and write these verses out. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, this verse, how many sermons have been preached on it? And um, in our training, we're, we're battling a couple of different things as we're encouraging pastors to preach God's word faithfully. One of two things generally happens. They'll read a text and then just stand up and talk about whatever comes to their mind about that text. Another thing is they have an idea. They want to preach to their congregation. They look for a text to support their idea. And we're we're teaching them to preach the message of the author. So if we're preaching the message of the author, what is this text about? Is, is, this, is Paul's hope that someday, 2,000 years from now, maybe someday somebody is going to put a poster on the wall of their gym quoting these verses, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and so I know I can do those 10 extra push-ups. You know, is that what this is about? What's the message he's preaching? It's contentment, isn't it? I've learned how to live in abundance. I've learned how to live in times of need. I can handle either one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment is one of God's most precious gifts to his children. When we, in the fullness of Christ who lives within us, we are free to say, God, you're enough for me. The gifts from your hand are enough for me. What's the alternative? We live with a demanding spirit before the Lord. You know, I've given up everything to follow Christ. Should be something in it for me. And so there's a craving, even a demanding for more. Always more, always more. We cannot give ourselves to the gospel apart from contentment. So, is your wife enough for you? Is your money enough for you? Success enough for you? Ministry enough? Or are you living in relationship with God with a demanding spirit? He owes you more. This is a place of freedom and great power in which we can serve. Yet it was kind for you to share in my troubles. You Philippians know yourselves that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Do you remember other places in the New Testament where it talks about churches in Macedonia? Surely you do. When Paul's talking to the church of Corinth about that offering of relief for the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem undergoing great persecution, he uses the churches in Macedonia. They were in poverty themselves. Yet out of their poverty, they begged to give to the church in Jerusalem. This was not a wealthy church, Philippian church. They're not giving because they have so much surplus. They don't know what to do with it. They're giving because they love the Lord Jesus and his gospel and their brothers and sisters. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you send me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. If we saw a new television evangelist make that statement, our eyes, eyebrows would go up pretty quickly, you know. I'm re- not really looking for the gift. I'm looking for how your account is being credited. But Paul says it with a sincere and whole heart. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, fragrant offering, sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. We read this, Paul thanking brothers and sisters for being a part of his needs He assures them that God will meet their needs as well. Reminds us of the message of the Lord Jesus when he said, you can seek me and you can seek my kingdom with your whole heart. And at the same time, be confident, free. God's going to give you everything you need along the way. I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. I just want, as we close our time, for us to be reminded that the end of the gospel is not the salvation of souls. You know, we so desire family members to come to Christ. We want our friends and our neighbors to be saved. We want our co-workers to be in heaven with us. That's not the end of the gospel. The end of the gospel is the worship of the Lamb. Revelation 5, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one on heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Think your prayers matter to God? Your prayers are eternal. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to open the scroll and to, or take the scroll and open its seals. For you are slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea, all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We're going to be there on this day when that happens. With all of God's creatures, the elders, the angels, those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, worshipping our glorious Lord forever. And there's a song we will sing. It will become our favorite forever song. We will never tire of singing this song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Paul's Philippian letter, he's saying to his beloved brothers and sisters in Philippi and you and me, sing now the song that you'll sing forever. Worthy is the lamb. Sing it in your marriage. Sing it with your money. Sing it in your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sing it with every passion of your soul. Sing it now. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain.